Joshua 7. Where are my March Madness fans in the room? All right. Yep. This is the only interactive part. You better interact now. Uh, March Madness fans. I don't know if you're like me, but I love March Madness. I don't watch all of the games uh, through the season, but when it comes to watching the tournament, the March Madness tournament, man, I get really into it. I think for a lot of reasons, I love it, but I think for the, the, the biggest reason is I love to root for the underdogs. I mean, you don't even have to be a basketball fan to appreciate a good underdog story. I try to tell my wife that, but she still doesn't watch the games with me. But um, there's, this year, uh, if, you're, if you're following along, uh, there's been this awesome story of the underdog long shot that really captured the heart of a lot of people. Um, and it is the Cinderella story of St. Peter's. I don't know if you were kind of following that early. Uh, but man, this was a great story of this long shot underdogs who, who really just kind of came out. They, they were ill-equipped. They were a small chip on the shoulder, small school. Uh, they had about 2,300 enrollment at their school. Uh, they're not as talented as the rest of the teams. They got uh, overlooked when it came to big scholarships. Um, so they come in. It's the classic David and Goliath story. They come out of the gate strong. They're on the road to the final four and they came out strong and they slayed the giants of Kentucky. We know that because I posted about that, right? Uh, they slayed Murray State, uh, Purdue. They were just taking them out, right? And it's an awesome story. Follow along. But, but then what happened was, I think they started to maybe get a little too confident. Uh, I think they started doing a lot of interviews and stuff like that. They're on TV and the covers and they were not used to those things. I think they got a little bit comfortable. And then what happened was, if you're following along with the story, they ran into their greatest enemy uh, last week, uh, North Carolina, and then they got humbly defeated. That's, the, that's how the story kind of ended. They're no longer in the tournament. They faced uh, defeat under North Carolina. I, I say that because that's kind of where we find Israel right here in chapter 7. The, the ultimate long shot underdogs, uh, ill-equipped, not very talented. They weren't beautiful people. They weren't strong. They weren't smart. And they're on the road to the promised land. And they came out super strong out of the gate, didn't they? They, they came out strong. They crossed a mile-wide raging river in the Jordan, right? Success. They, they, they watched impenetrable and passable walls of Jericho fall down right before their eyes. They watched the, the mighty Canaanites drown and suffer right there. They killed them all. They're, they're, they're just experiencing great, great numbers, great success, all is well in Israel. They are happy in God and God is happy with them. That's the way that chapter six ended, by the way. There was favor on the Lord. He, he, he had a lot of favor on them. Everything was just great. But then today in chapter seven, there is an abrupt shift. There's a massive shift of what happened. Israel has broken faith. The Lord's anger is burning against them and they faced a defeat at AI. Now, what's happened? Why this dramatic shift? I'm going to try to show you here today of what happened. Uh, but let me give you a little spoiler alert. I'll tell you what happened. They ran into the greatest enemy that they had ever faced and ever would face. It wasn't AI and it was not the Amorites. They ran into the enemy of secret sin. Secret sin was their greatest enemy, and it cost them greatly. So let's dive into the story today. I'll tell you this, just a personal note. I have preached this to myself today. 
It's always a good thing to do before you get up to teach. You, you preach it to yourself. And man, I'm telling you what, this is a sobering, sobering story. Um, it, it's an attention grabber. Um, I, I think that today, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that you'll leave here chipper, uh, but I, I know you don't always pay me to do that either. But, but what I do know, I think there is a sobering lesson in here, but I do think there's a spectacular ending to it as well. So let's try to go on the journey, and I'm going to try to take you there. Now, up top, top, Tim, top eight, read passages one through nine for us. So let me tell you what, what was kind of happening and what he read for us. Uh, verse one is really a, a, a statement of the current situation of Israel. It says, what happened? Israel broke faith. Someone, Israel broke faith in regards to devoted things and the Lord's anger burned against them. So it's, it's like, here's the situation, verse one. Here's the predicament that Israel finds himself in. And the rest of the chapter is unfolds on the result of it, what happens because of the predicament, and then God's instructions on how they can get out of this predicament. That's kind of the flow of it. Verse one just says, boom, here it is. Now let's back up and kind of show you what happened. Well, what happened was in verse two through five, we see Israel's defeat at Ai. Um, and, and what you'll notice here is up to this point, all through the book of Joshua, God had given commands, instructions, Israel had followed. And every single time they followed God's commands, things went really well for them, right? Success, victory, like us. Every time we follow God's commands, things typically go well for us. And when we deviate, things go badly. Well, out of the gate, if you'll notice, they, they took on AI by themselves. God gave no instruction out of the gate to do anything at AI. They got comfortable. They got a little cocky, right? They lost the eye of the tiger, and they kind of basically said, hey, let's go take AI without any instruction from the Lord. Joshua sent two spies uh, to AI. The spies come back and say, hey, Man, I've looked at them. This is going to be cake, Joshua. We can take them out very easily. Just send a few companies of men, maybe like 3,000, and we will wipe them out from the face of the earth, right? Without a word from God. And they're acting on their own skill, talent, strength, wisdom. They forgot who they were. And what happened was they get down to AI and they experience a crushing defeat. 36 men died. And you think, well, 36 men in the spoils of war, that's not really that many, right? 36 gravestones. 36 widows were made that day. Probably hundreds of children are now fatherless because of Israel's disobedience. There's a great lesson in there for us when we deviate from God's commands destruction and pain come in our lives. Now, what happened was, verse 5 said that all of Israel's hearts are now melted, which is ironic because you remember that's what the hearts of the Canaanites were experiencing when Israel came through. Remember, their hearts were now melted. So now Israel, how the tides have turned, their hearts are melted. They're in fear. They're in fear. And Joshua, in verses 6 through 9, 
He is in great grief. He goes face first to the ground. He is crying out to God. He is questioning God. Really, it's a repeat of what Moses did in the wilderness, right? Why have you brought us out of here? So he's just pleading with God. And now here is where we pick up the story in verse 10. This is the Lord's response to Joshua. All right, so let me read through this verse 10 through 15. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things that they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. Unless you destroy the devoted things from among you, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man, man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and as because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Now, Did you notice out of the gate what God just did? Joshua was worshiping God. He was on the ground face first, praying to God. And God says, get up. What are you doing? Anybody in here ever need God to tell you to stop praying? I I don't. I need his gracious reminder that I'm supposed to pray. I don't need him to tell me to stop praying. So why is God saying, Joshua, get up, man. Stop praying. Well, here's why. Because there was sin in the camp. That's why. Joshua, you don't need to pray about what to do. Stop lamenting. Stop victimizing yourself and Israel and get up. The Israel, you have transgressed my covenant. You've torn my covenant, and there is devoted things in the camp, and I need you to go take care of these things. Devoted things. 27 times in the book of Joshua, the word devoted things is mentioned. Remember last week, um, after God gave instructions to Israel at the defeat of Jericho, he told them, don't take devoted things, is what he told them. And here, here's what he said in 618, I'll go back. He says, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things, and here's what will happen, and you'll make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So devoted things in the, in the war 
they were things that were to be devoted to God, either for destruction or for God's special purposes. That's what devoted things were. And he had given very, very clear instructions, don't take devoted things. God was the victor of Israel, therefore, the spoils of war belonged to him. Those are his things. And so the, what's happening here is that Israel has stolen from God. They've robbed God, which is similarly to what Malachi 3 tells us that we do when we don't tithe. We rob God. They stole from God, right? But I think Israel here, keeping devoted things, was more about ste- more than just stealing God's goods. I think they were stealing God's glory. You see, when they take the, the spoils and the plunders of war, they're basically saying, look what we did. We won, we conquered, therefore all of these things are ours. They stole the glory of God. I remember not too long ago, a, uh, a pretty notable uh, politician who was talking about COVID numbers in his state during the height of his popularity. The COVID numbers were drastically uh, being reduced. And he said, God did not do this. We did this. Just a few short months ago, he was removed from office after moral failure. God will bring down mighty kings. He will always humble those who pride themselves. Now, Israel, like this foolish politician, had a man in the camp who took Devoted things. His name was Achan. Achan. He kept them to himself. And notice here that God says to Joshua that one man's rebellion was the root of why they were defeated at Ai. Because of one man's theft... One man's hidden sin, all of Israel is now guilty. And he says to them, you will not have any more victory until the sin and the sinner is purged from among you. All of Israel It actually, in the text, it actually says they lied, they stole, but it was really just one man's sin. Listen, this is the idea of corporate guilt. It's the idea of corporate guilt. God had held all of Israel accountable because of the sin of one man. And he had done this throughout the Old Testament. Seems a little unfair. Why would one... Why would everyone get punished for one man's sin? Well, in 2 Samuel 21, the sin of Saul led to three years of famine for all of Israel. 2 Samuel 
because of the sin of David, thousands of people were killed because of his sin. We know that Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says that a little leaven ruins and spoils the whole lump. This is the idea of corporate guilt. You probably have experienced that at some degree. I've experienced corporate guilt before. I remember in, um, when I played basketball in college, we, our, our coach at the end of practice would make our team run sprints, um, and then the whole team had to finish in a certain amount of time. And if the whole team didn't finish, then the whole team was punished. If one person didn't make the time, we were all punished and had to keep running. Well, we always had that one kid. He was like 6'10", and he's like 300 pounds, like, coach, come on, right? And this kid could never make the time. The whole team punished. We had to keep running and running and running. And then after practice, of course, we gave him a code red for the glory of God. Uh, That's kind of what we did with him. But sometimes the whole group suffers because of one person's sin. You've experienced this in your life too, right? It's not that uncommon. One error or bad play on the field or the court, an entire team can suffer defeat. One uh, mistake by an employee at your job can ruin the whole company. One single wreck on I-24 can make a traffic jam and all kinds of people suffering for it. One single sin by someone in your family can cause devastating pain throughout all of your family, and it may be even generations. One moral failure of a pastor in a congregation can destroy that specific church. Corporate guilt is real, and God is very serious about Achan's sin. He doesn't want it to pollute the rest of the church. It's a gangrened member that must be cut off from the body so it doesn't infect anyone else. God is very serious about Achan's sin and actually goes on to say that if if you don't deal with it, Israel, here's what's going to happen. I'll leave you. I won't be with you. Now, that's that should be the most devastating thing. There's some things that happen, of course. They, they, they would die in battle. They wouldn't be able to stand against their enemies, and of course, that's true. But the, the worst thing that could happen, that he would leave them. Remember back in Joshua 1, he said, be strong and courageous. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But now here, he says, if you don't deal with the sin, I will leave you. This is a horrible consequence If this one man's sin is not dealt with in the camp. But here's where the grace of God comes in. He he provides a way. He provides a way that they would not suffer all of those things, losing his presence and his power. He's provided a way that he would stay with them and continue to be their, their people, to be their God. All those things, he's provided a way. And he says this, He told them to consecrate themselves first, which we know that typically meant either washing themselves or abstaining from sex for a period of time. And then God gave them very specific instructions on how he would weed 
this thief from the camp. They didn't know. Had no idea who it was. But God knew. And so he gave them very specific instructions. But there's something here I, don't, I, I want you to, to see here because we know it's Achan. We know he's the guy here. There's something I don't want you to miss here. When God was giving these instructions to Joshua, the elders were also present. So they heard about this situation. They heard of the reason that they were taken out of Ai. They heard that there was sin in the camp. And I, I, would, I believe that they, that started to spread throughout Israel really, really fast. That the, the word on the street was, hey, somebody in here has taken some devoted things and we're all going to pay for it. I think that spread throughout Israel. But Joshua waited a full day before he went and executed the Lord's instructions. Why did he wait? I think this is giving Achan an opportunity to confess. I think Achan would have heard this. Oh, Woo, I know they're, they're talking about me now. Uh-oh. I think he was giving him an opportunity to confess on his own before his sin was found out. You see, this is the grace of God here. Remember Rahab in Jericho, she was devoted to destruction just like all of Jericho was. But yet she repented, she turned to the Lord, and therefore she was spared the destruction. And I think God is giving Achan an opportunity to do the very same thing, giving him time. But we know that he did not do that. He did not confess, he refused, and he kept his sin hidden. Let's pick up the story in verse 16 through 21. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah. The clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil of a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So picture this, Joshua, the early riser, Joshua. Three times we're told he's a early riser in Joshua. He, uh, he assembles all of Israel and they're just kind of lined up. And then God by lot begins to call out uh, the tribes and work, work them down. First, he dismisses every tribe except for Judah. So everybody else went home and only the tribe of Judah remained there. Then the next call was the clan of Zerahites. Everybody who wasn't a part of the clan of Zerahites, they all were gone. And then he pulls the Zerahites in here. 
and he pulls out the house of Zabdi. And everybody else, there's only one family left, and it's the family of Zabdi. And then he finally weeds himself down, and he calls out Achan. Can you imagine being Achan on this day? Like, I, I don't know, and we don't get a whole lot of thought here, what it was like. He, he might have started out the day confident. Like, he probably thought at the beginning of the day, no one saw me. I, I mean, I, I was very secretive about it. No one's going to bring me out. My hidden sin can be covered up and I can escape this with no consequences, right? I think he probably thought that out of the gate here. But anyone who knows God knows that God knows. Anyone who knows God knows that God knows. God saw what he did at Jericho when he took the spoil. He was there. Why was he there? Because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So God saw Achan that day. He made the grievous mistake of thinking that no one saw him, but God did. So he's busted. He's called out here. And he goes to a confession. I saw something in this confession from Achan that I wanted to share. You know, he, he gets a bad rap in the story. He catches a lot of heat, literally catches a lot of heat. But there's something about his confession that, that I thought that would be noteworthy. The first thing is he says four things about his sin. He said, I saw, slash, I saw with my eyes. Then he coveted something. He desired it. And then he took it. And then he concealed it. Does that sound anywhere remotely familiar to you? This is the sin of our first parents, what they did in the Garden of Eden saw fruit was the delight to the eyes they wanted it they took it and then they tried to hide it right this is this is the root of all of our sin this is what we do all the time just like our first parents that's the first thing i'd see about this thing i think the other thing about his confession. Listen, I don't know. There's a lot of debate over, well, this was a true confession from, um, from Achan. Uh, some would say, no, he never really repented. He got busted. He never put his trust in the Lord and asked for forgiveness, like all those things. So we don't know if there's salvation in him or not. We, this is really not part of the story, but there is something about his confession that I thought was noteworthy. Um, it, first of all, it was not a Will Smith Oscar confession. It, it, you know how that went down? Love makes you do crazy things. God's really calling me in my life right now to fight for the people that I love. The devil's all around me. Like that, that's not a godly confession. That's a worldly confession. Oh, I hope I don't have to pay a big price for this. Hope they invite me back next week or next year, whatever. Like that's not a godly confession. That's called worldly grief, right? So 
Achan's confession is not like that. It is a little different, right? He's, he's talking about, I've sinned against God. It's the David, Psalm 51, kind of, I've sinned against God and God alone. Like there's some, there's some good language here that could start. Again, I don't know if it's authentic or not, but I do know there's some things about his confession. But nonetheless, Israel has a job to do now, right? God had given him instructions on what to do. Now where it gets really, really real and arrest our attention, verses 22 through 26 Israel now has to take action. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. Why do they run? Because unconfessed sin in the camp is an urgent thing. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought him up to the valley of Achor. It's the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Wow. That is why I told you that this was a very sobering story. What just happened? And some say the Bible is boring. Here's, here's the lesson for us, okay? Let me go back to the theme passage of all of our study in the book of Joshua. The theme passage, look again in 1-9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever that you go. As outnumbered, marginalized Christ followers in a world that faces a lot of opponents, God has told us to be strong and courageous. And the reason that we can be strong and courageous is because God is going with us. That he promises us to bless us, to keep us, to provide for us, to protect us, to fight for our good. That's why we can be strong and courageous. He's going to bless us. He's going to bless our lives, our our kids' lives, our our grandchildren's lives. Don't we want to see things like that in our lives? Don't we want to see the blessing of God in our lives, right? Yes, we do. Yes, yes, we do. But here's the lesson for us, church. The greatest threat and the greatest hindrance to us losing all of that is secret sin in the camp. That is the greatest single threat 
for us of losing all of that. The greatest threat that we face in this world. Listen, it's not the libs and the far leftists, right? I don't like it either, but that's not the greatest threat that we're facing today. The LGBTQ community, political craziness, the woke joke culture. Those are threats. Don't get me wrong, of course. But the greatest threat is not Russia, failing economy, high gas prices. The greatest threat in your life is even not a person. It's not your ex. It's not a neighbor. It's not your spouse. It's not a family member. It's not a president. Mine and your greatest threat on missing out of the goodness of God and all of his blessings is our secret sin. We talk about how messed up the world is. That's very, very easy, right? It's easy to talk about those things. But we would be hitting staggering levels of arrogance if all we do is to talk about what's outside the camp instead of dealing with stuff that is inside our own camp. It's easy for us to get around our life groups and our D groups. It's easy to get in here and just talk about all the perversion and corruption in the world. That's easy to do right now, right? Well, what's harder to do is to sit around in church with your people in groups and to talk about the perversion and the corruption in our own lives. That's a lot harder to do. But yet, if we don't, we stand to lose the blessing of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the promises of God, and his anger can burn against us. We must deal with the enemy of secret sin. So I've got two points as we close out, two things that we're going to talk about. How do we do this? The first one is we are called to fight our sin. We have to fight this kind of sin. Now you look at Achan. Now we have to understand that Achan wasn't the only one in Israel that was sinning. It wasn't because everybody else wasn't perfect, right? They're all sinners. But, but Achan, there's something different about Achan. Here's what it is. Achan wasn't fighting his sin. Everybody else in the camp was fighting their sin, and instead, Achan was hiding his sin. No struggle in Achan. He wasn't sitting around with the Holy Spirit. Should I go confess this today? No, he was hiding his sin. And because he hid his sin instead of fighting his sin, ruin came to Achan and all of his household. Everyone suffered because of Achan's sin. Church, we sin every day. Now, if you say that you don't sin, then God calls you a liar and now you have sinned. So it's either way you go, you're on it. Christian sin. But what marks us, why we are different is because we fight our sin. We don't hide our sin. We fight it. It's a struggle for us. There, there is a difference between 
fighting against lustful desires, and then hiding an affair from your spouse. Big difference. There's a difference between struggling with loving your neighbor while consciously hating them. There's a difference between struggling to forgive the wrongdoer in your life and then secretly saying, I will never forgive them for what they've done to me. That's not fighting your sin. That's hiding your sin. There's no struggle inside of you. Church, when we hide sin, here's the lesson for us. Our secret sin will not only bring ruin to us, it will bring ruin to those around us. When when I sin, my sin can bring ruin on my family. When you sin, it's never you sinning alone. Always people are in your life. They will always trickle over. Don't ever buy the lie that your secret sin ain't touching anyone. Achan bought that lie, and what happened? One day, Achan was the richest man in Israel probably, right? He had the Israel dream. His future was planned. His kids were set up for college. Everything in Achan's life was awesome. He was living the dream, and then boom, one day, he loses it all. That's what secret sin does. It can destroy and ruin everything in your path. And just because you haven't been exposed today doesn't mean that your sin will not find you out because your sin will find you out eventually. It will happen. It will impact our loved ones. I mean, it's not just fathers. I know sometimes it's about fathers and mothers. Children, man. Children, your sin affects people in your family. It brings pain and suffering on them too. To all the people around us. We must fight our sin. We'll fight it for a long time. And sometimes we, we, we win the battle. Sometimes we lose the battle. But here's what I will tell you. At some point in your life, with that secret besetting sin, at some point in your life, you will decide who your master is. Either you're mastered by sin or you're mastered by God. And Paul told us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to put to death the deeds of the body. We can kill and slay that sin in our life that's secret. We have to have that kind of wartime mentality against our sin. Not training our sin, not feeling bad and praying about that thing that we did one more time. That's training sin. That's not fighting sin. We have to put to death the deeds of the body. And sometimes I think we talk about Fighting sin, okay, get a new phone, blockers on all your triple X website and accountability for it. Yes, and those are great things. Do them, do them, do them. But I will tell you the first thing that we do to fight the sin in our life, and this is a great quote by John Piper. It says this, 
We can defeat the deceitful pleasures of sin with the superior pleasures of knowing God. Sin becomes more repulsive as God becomes more beautiful, precious, and satisfying. He said this, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Great word. Church, fight your sin. Here's the second thing I think he we are called to do this courage to confess sin. Fight to confess sin. I think actually the first step in fighting sin is confessing sin. It's bringing out in the light. You can't fight it if it's in the dark, right? The first thing that we do is to bring it into the light, to confess our sin. Let me ask you a question today. Do you have anything hidden in your tent today? An emotional or physical affair? Facebook flirting with someone who's not your spouse? Embezzling or stealing money from your employer? Shady business practices? Stealing from other people? You have a secret addiction to alcohol or opioids? Are you hiding the fact that you don't tithe? Do you have porn hidden in your tent? Do you sleep well at night? Are you always looking over your shoulder to see if anyone's going to catch you doing that thing? Maybe you're like Aiken. Maybe you think that no one's watching. No one sees it. What's the big deal? I'll remind you again that anyone who knows God knows God knows. He is omnipresent. R.C. Sproul said that, that there is no escaping the penetrating gaze of God. You can't play hide and go seek with God. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying here. You can't run. You cannot hide. Trying to hide from God is like trying to hide from oxygen. You, you can't do it. There's nowhere to go. He always sees everything. He's in the the public places, the private places. When it's light and when you have the lights off, he sees all things. He's looking over your shoulder as you scroll through your device. He sees all of your cookies. He sees the words that you say. He sees everything because God is omnipresent. Now, knowing that God is omnipresent can be really awesome or can be really a horrible, frightening thought, right? If you're walking through dangerous waters and pain and suffering, it's awesome because God's there with you. But if you're walking in disobedience and hiding things, oh, it's a terrifying thought to know that we can't escape the penetrating gaze of God. Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him 
to him we must give account. Do you sincerely believe that? Or do you operate off of a no one's watching me do that thing kind of life? Again, don't be fooled because no one's called you out or caught you in your sin yet. Our sins, here's, here's the, this is the sobering uh, idea here the, that I, I think that God wants to scare the sin out of us. The scariest thought here is that eventually God will out us in our sin. All things will eventually come to light. Numbers 32, 23. This is what happens if you don't confess. Listen, this is real. It says, but if you will not do so, if you will not confess, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Church, there's only, I, I think confessing your sin, I think it's a very hard thing to do. I am not going to blow past that. That's a hard thing to do. There might be some pain and there might be some suffering. But you know, there's one thing that's worse than confessing your sin, and that is your sin confronting you. That there there would be a day something happens in your life where your sin is drugged out into the light like Achan, and it's too late. I think that's more terrifying so this idea of confession is not just to get rid of the bad. I think the scriptures point that confession brings freedom and healing to us. That's the invitation here. Clean conscience, God's going with us, freedom and healing. Look at what James says in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the invitation to confess sin is one of freedom of liberation. So today, here's what, here's what I want you to think about today. And this is a practical thing. You don't have to necessarily do it today, but you can do this today. Some of you today need to finally take that sin that is in your tent and confess that sin. Today is the day to respond to the word of God. Maybe it's done in a few ways. Maybe you do this with your D group or your life group. Someone you know in your close circle, you don't have to come up on stage and confess that. Maybe maybe you need to reach out to the church and let a pastor walk with you. That's the deal. I I don't want to just preach to you. I want to pastor you. All, All preachers are uh, all pastors preach, right? But not all preachers pastor. I want to preach to you on Sunday, but I want to pastor you every day of the week. So some of you might need to come in and get some pastoral counseling and how to walk through confessing these things to either us, loved ones. Maybe it's a difficult situation that you know you need to come to your spouse and share that with you. We will help you with that. We want to walk alongside of you in that. We have a counseling ministry that we do. There's a lot of things we need to do and can help you to understand that when you come to us 
and we help you with confession. There's no condemnation. Confession is about restoration. That's the invitation here as we come together and confess. Knowing this as well, this beautiful reminder in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we could come to the Lord Jesus Christ and he's just faithful to forgive. Now, as I said, some of you need today to confess sin. You begin to start with a godly confession, godly grief, and then you might need to go horizontally with someone that you need to confess that to. But the other side of that, some of you may have someone come to you and confess their sin. What will you do when they come to you? The encouragement here is to get ready to prepare your heart. How can we expect people to come to us if they are fearful that they're going to expect judgment, condemnation? How in the world could you do this to me? We need to prepare our hearts to receive that sinner in the same way that Christ would receive that sinner. What is Christ's posture when we come to him in our sins? What did you do this time? I can't believe you blew it. You're going to pay for this. Time out for you for six months. That's not God's response. That's not Christ's response. He receives the sinners with grace and mercy. And listen, that might sting. I'm not saying that it may not sting. But it is a far less pain to walk through that kind of confession than the pain that we could experience like Achan and be outed for our hidden sin. Now, let me, let me see if I can... I like sometimes to get in your heads and maybe think about what you might be thinking here at this point of the service. Some of you might be thinking this today. I think the Christian will hear this message and say, Oh, that is very sobering. Do do I have sin in my camp? Do I have sin hidden in my heart? Am I like Achan? Some of you might be responding that way. I would tell you that I think that kind of posture reveals that you're not like Achan. When you have pain, and you question and you reflect, is it me, Lord? I think that's a good posture. I think that's the heart of the redeemed. I think that's something a follower of Jesus would respond to. So I I think I would encourage you to lean in and yes, bring that sin out of your tent, confess that thing and repent and kill it. But some of you also might be responding in a different way today and you might be saying, that's not me. I'm nothing like that. No one really knows about my sin. I mean, I'm not hurting anyone. That thing, it's all good. It's not affecting anyone. Who is this joker think he is to get up and try to call me out for what I'm doing? I'm a pretty good person, actually. 
I'm not bad at all. I do a lot of good things. God wants me to be happy. I mean, nobody's perfect. I think if that is your response, let me, let me, let me say this to you. This is a loving response. I think if that is your response today, that it actually reveals that you're still dead in your trespasses and sins and that you know nothing of Christ at all. I think that person is currently devoted to destruction like Achan. So I want to, if that's your mindset and and you're kind of, hey, that's me. I've said those things. Listen, I've got some good news for you. There's good news for the guilty. And here, if you hear anything in the entire message today, hear this. We are all Achan. We are all born just like him. On the road to destruction, devoted to destruction, deserving of destruction like Achan. That's all of us. Suffering the same fate. I, dude, what I've done in my life, I deserve the same thing as Achan. Only Christians say stuff like that. Listen, only Christians say stuff like, I'm aching. I should have been devoted to destruction. But there is good news for those who will identify with Achan. And the good news is that Jesus died so that you don't have to. You don't have to suffer what Achan suffered because Christ suffered it for you. Achan was guilty. Jesus was innocent, and yet he still took on the destruction of God. He lived the life that we can't live. He died our death, rose from the grave on the third day so that all people, public sinners, private sinners, he knew them by name, all who would trust in Jesus Christ would have eternal life, the mercies of God. Do you know that kind of forgiveness? Do you know that kind of mercy is available to you? Not only available to you, God is rich in mercy and he loves to pour out mercy upon sinners. The question is today, are you someone who is devoted to destruction or are you devoted to Jesus because of what he did? The band's gonna come out. I wanna leave you in that kind of space. I want a response, give you a response today, a couple things. For someone in the room that can identify with Achan, but they've never trusted Jesus Christ for what he's done, and you want to give your life to Christ today, please come talk to us. You can fill out a, a box on the blue card. You can talk to somebody here in the room that you know loves Jesus. They love to get your questions. So you don't, if you don't want to come talk to me, that's okay. Come talk to somebody that you know does love and believe in Jesus Christ. For the church, I've given a lot of things that you could potentially do today. And so here's the first thing I want to do. If you're a, uh, this is off the cuff. If you're a deacon in the room, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Can you go 
uh, and stand up in the back of the room. And so here's why I want to do that is because in a moment, if you just want to get up and share anything, uh, ask for counsel, confess anything, just even start that process today, you can get up and just go walk and talk to somebody in the back of the room. All right. So deacons, go ahead and move back there if you can. Um, if, you, if you're like, hey, I'm not going to get up in front of everybody, everybody will immediately know I'm a sinner. Uh, listen, we're all sinners already, so we know that. But, um, but, but you can reach out to us this week, right? You, 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 this doesn't have to end right here. Call, reach out to the church. We want to help you walk through this. Confession doesn't happen just here, um, but it can happen anywhere else as well. We want to have you uh, respond to the Lord how hey, you do that. If you have anything you want to sit down as the the band sings in worship, and you just want to sit here and do that confession, that godly grief confession to God. Start there and then use that time to, that he would give you the strength, to give you the courage to then go on and confess to other people. Listen, I know it's a heavy message. I get it. I understand it's hard. But the beauty again, the spectacular ending here is that there's grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's freedom in fighting sin, and there's freedom in and confessing sin today. So I love you guys. Let the Lord respond.